Disclaimer. Disclaimer. I hardly know her. This show is not suitable for young listeners due to explicit language and sometimes explicit themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 60. 60, 60, 60. I'm 60 episodes old. Of Teach Me Tiger. <laughs> pot that down, as they say in the biz. They say pot that down? Mm-hmm. I thought you'd know all the lingo by now. Listen, Chris. Mm-hmm. Listen. Mm-hmm. I know some lingo. Mm-hmm. I know lingo like um, peaks and clips. Right. Clipping. Clipping, yeah. These um, all sound like... Gain. S- sex terms. Yeah, gain. Mm. <laughs> I'm super gain for podcasting, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> Tiger, the show where I, Melody Starkweather, hang with my super cool and experty friends, and they teach us about new things. Today, co-hosting is Sweet Sassy Molassie himself, Christopher <laughs> Chambers. It's the first time I've ever been called Sweet Sassy Molassie. That I'm. It's because you don't listen, Chris. I call you that all the time. That uh, that makes me sassy. <laughs> just makes me inattentive (laughs) (laughs) on a future episode we'll talk about my add (laughs) hey chris morning sweet pea um we're gonna be talking with emmett cameron who's super smart and cool about how nazis ruined queer history and erased history and erased progress and um did some uh, like a lot of shitty stuff literal burning literal burning and For sure, it's a bit of a bummer, but this story also features some very cool characters, as you'll find out. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that, Chris, we always do this. Do you have any weak peaks? Mm. Oh, putting sweet sassy molassy on the spot. Weak peaks. Peaky weaky. Was your week peak your phone not working? Or I guess. Oh, was yeah. your week peak like the in, um, all the increased COVID cases exploding in our neighboring city, Ottawa? Oh, yeah. Or um, maybe your week peak was just like the apocalypse. Maybe. Okay. Week started out strong, flat tire and a dead phone. That was a <laughs> great Monday. <laughs> Mondays are wonderful. <laughs> uh, but other than that, you know, just cleaning fish tanks and I have to try and figure out this massive massive tank build that i'm doing and our children are once again apparently on summer vacation (laughs) after several days at school after a great a great semester of (laughs) four days (laughs) god melody what's your week peak (laughs) what's your week peak my week peak is not unrelated my week peak has got to be the kids going to school 
Right. You know, remember when they went to school and they went for like a week? Yeah, that one time they went to that school one time, briefly. That was my week peak. <laughs> right. I, the first day they went to school, I like had a whole day right. I, of self-care. I like had a hot tub by myself and I did my nails. Honestly, I was so happy for you. I did a bunch of yoga. <laughs> yeah. It was like just wonderful all about me pretty sure that's what we signed up for when we had the two was that they would one day both go to school i think so <laughs> anyway whatever it doesn't matter <laughs> this is a great intro <laughs> okay sorry so kids going to school and then and then the best part mm-hmm. was the aforementioned staying home because of runny noses which started three days ago we're on our third day of kids home with runny noses they don't have fucking covid (laughs) they might have allergies their noses are runny i can't send them to school i'm stuck home with them and it's awesome covid's fucking great and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me and our family yeah it was it was fun like in the spring ish no it's not (laughs) well (laughs) <laughs> that uplifting note <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about nazis that'll bring us all up actually actually though i will say a solid week peak solid uh-huh. week yep. peak. i mean people could be listening to this anywhere but we're in canada we're in eastern ontario and we're coming into fall it's been getting cold it's been freezing overnight already in mid-september which isn't like abnormal it just sucks but um the last few days oh, have yeah. been really 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 beautiful beautiful which days has, yeah has made it much more tolerable yeah like those having the perfect bright warm-ish but not hot early fall september mm-hmm. days yeah yeah so it's made it uh, uh more palatable having the children yes. home they can go outside <laughs> they don't <laughs> they can but i've i've forcibly taken them on walks like three days in a row here and we're gonna go for uh, number four sweet so there's that. Anyway, let's move on to something more uplifting, like Nazis. <laughs> Great. <laughs> this is Emmett. Emmett hey. Cameron. Hey, Emmett. Hey. Hello. Hey. <laughs> we. So we're going to talk about. What are we going to talk about, Emmett? Um, Can you give it a quick, like, catchy summary? I called this How the Nazis Robbed Queer History. It could also be called How the Nazis Robbed Sex History. And also how they robbed the future. Um, and also how we're, like, winning it back. And also how this one dude named Magnus Hirschfeld was, like, pretty sweet. And so were his two boyfriends. Nice. <laughs> I, I would say that's, like, roughly it. He sounds uh, like a legend. <laughs> Yeah. I uh, want two boyfriends. <laughs> I Yeah. I mean, like, nice boyfriends. Okay. So, I don't know if you've listened to the pod before, but I'm going to ask you to reach your hand into my box. Okay. And pull out a question. Roll up your sleeves. Pull up your socks. Reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. But you have to reach like through the coffers of the internet to do it. it. I I can feel it. I'm leaning in the correct direction. (laughs) Feel it. Tingles. Do I get to make a sound effect when I pull something out? Yes. (laughs) What was your favorite game to play as a child? Games stressed me out as a child. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was not good. I did not play well with others. I was, a, I was very much like on my own making weird things in the forest child. That sounds like yeah. a game. Which is a game. Yeah, playing in the <laughs> forest is totally yeah. a game. I mean, yeah. you can play games by yourself. Yeah. Are you, are you, you know that game you play in the forest when you're with your friend and their neighbor and you all show each other your private parts? Do you know that game? <laughs> <laughs> No? no i mean i know the game i didn't play it <laughs> chris what do you think What's my favorite game yeah my dad and i used to play a game called hide and go fuck yourself that was just where i would hide and then he would just fuck off did he call it that no i'm, I'm just kidding uh i like foursquare a lot i played the shit What's out of four that square it's like a game with a ball and there's four squares and you it's kind of like a volleyball and you kind of like hit it back and forth or no with a tennis ball and you're kind of like it's a it's like a game you play on the playground oh, okay a four square thing drawn on the pavement nice yep it's kind of like handball but in a four square cool 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 yep i used to actually really like it's hard to remember being a kid i'm so old now but when it would snow and we obviously you have to go outside for recess anyway mm-hmm. and we would build like four ish things in the snow like just walls that would be rooms and then we would play house sure i remember that being a blast yeah like building a fort no i mean like specifically making a house out of snow and then playing house i never played that i feel like i was always the dad because i'm so tall <laughs> icebreakers emmett before you teach us all about how the nazis robbed queer history yeah uh, you have a podcast too right sort of <laughs> you totally have a uh, podcast. Well, what are you talking about? I I made I made a season of a podcast that you can totally check out, and it's called Gays in the Woods. Uh, I'm currently sort of like on an extended hiatus and figuring out what I want to do with it. My sort of vision was kind of uh, foiled by COVID, and then foiled by uh, inertia. I think <laughs> so. I'm uh, still kind of coming around to figuring out whether I want to like find a co-host to work with, and whether that would make me excited about the project again but i will say the first season that i did is like it's it's a pretty solid season there's like a lot of cool guests it's all about lgbtqia plus rural experiences and like i talked to some really cool people i know i talked to like some people i don't know as well and learned some more about them so that was fun yeah so it's there it exists as much as it exists. Yeah, cool. Go listen. Can people just listen in all the places? Yeah, they can listen in all the places, I think. They can listen in places I didn't know exist. I know that much. So hopefully they can ex- listen in all of the places that they know exist. Yeah. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Okay, so Nazis robbed queer history. Like, fuck Nazis. Yeah. That's, let's yeah. establish that like right off the bat. Let's ha- not have any am- ambiguity about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really bad. Yeah. You won't like them more after listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> and and you came up with the idea to do this topic after we covered um, Lenny Riefenstahl, who's very controversial and says she's not a Nazi, but blah, blah, blah. So this is nice to balance it out with a little like, seriously, though, guys, like, fuck Nazis, because I didn't I, I certainly don't want to glorify Nazis by talking yeah. about Lenny Riefenstahl and whether or not she's a Nazi. You know what totally. I'm saying? Totally. Yeah, so so basically this started, we were kind of talking about uh, how in like what's called the Weimar Republic, which is roughly from 1918 
So sort of after World War One to the time when the Nazis take power is when the area that we'd now refer to as mostly as Germany was known as like the Weimar Republic or the German Republic. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting like there's a lot of stuff going on, obviously, like a lot of stuff happened at the Treaty of Versailles. A lot of stuff like, like impacted Germany and Austria, especially like politically a lot and economically. And of course, like this era, like bumps into the Great Depression. So there's a lot going on there. Um, if you want like a day to day snapshot of Berlin that's from the era, there's this really interesting. Um, well, it's interesting if you really like like videos of machines <laughs> how how did you know i love videos of machines you're a person who like goes on youtube and looks up like how it's made macaroni like you will like at least the first uh, fifth of this movie so it's from 1927 um and it's called berlin uh symphony of a metropolis or symphony of a great city or kind of the two translations of this and Basically, it's a documentary that's intending to show a day in the life of Berlin. So supposedly the story of this movie is that it was filmed by a fleet of camera operators within 24 hours sent out. So they went out all over the city to document life. Oh, cool. So the first part, again, is the part where that's really fantastic if you like machines, because uh, basically it's it's trying to show all this great innovation and the prosperity that's making their traditional lifestyle more convenient, a city on the rise kind of. And again, this is 1927. So they depression hasn't hit yet and you aren't in the same era of political conflict that's going to come later we were talking a little bit about this movie berlin symphony of a great city which is like it's a time capsule and um i'm gay so i relate to everything in terms of musicals um (laughs) classic gay (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, so something i thought that uh was like images probably more people already have in their head you can picture the musical sound of music check yep and you can picture the musical cabaret nope i can picture liza minnelli as sally oh yeah what's her name sally bowles yeah there we go i can picture her but i don't think i've actually seen cabaret so if you can picture those two sort of like contrasting images of life yeah. um, that are both kind of from like that part of Europe before the Nazis took power, you've got on the one hand, you've got the Von Trapp family singers who, if they had been down with fascism, would have been everything the Nazis wanted, right? They're this like wealthy, yeah. robust, blue-eyed, white Germanic family. They've got like so many kids. They've got even more kids than made it into that movie because the movie sets it like later in the timeline then actually happened. So in fact, like Maria and Georg like had three more kids and they have this like beautiful pastoral life and they sing about goats and little white flowers and they wear lederhosen. And that's like, that is the (laughs) dream, right? Like that's the, that's the image the Nazis are on for. Like, so that's why like they're, they actually like, you know, rather than getting Georg in trouble for like his, his views and speaking against them, they just like consistently are like trying to woo him because they're like this perfect image for them. Right. In terms of propaganda. Right. And they have to like escape to America so that yeah. they're not like put on display as Nazi propaganda. So yeah. wait, how many kids did they have ultimately? So by the time they had all of all of their children were born before they went to Vermont, mm-hmm. they had ten altogether. So they wow. Georg had seven kids when Maria came to live with them, and then they had three more kids in like I, the intervening ten years. That man has powerful semen. I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
very yeah. virulent. <laughs> yeah. how, how German. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, it's like anti-fascist semen. So they yeeted out of there. So on the other hand, Cabaret sets the scene. It's like this kind of fun, but like very gritty sex club in Berlin in the Weimar era, where there's kind of this like breezy, permissive attitude about like sex and homosexuality and cross-dressing. And it's like, you can like get an abortion and the economy is like also totally fucked. And everybody lives in a studio apartment with their sex lovers because they're very slutty and broke. So that's kind of like the picture that Cabaret paints. And then on the periphery of this, you've got the Nazis who are putting out all of this very appealing, like sound of music-ish propaganda. So right. like Cabaret has these scenes where like the radio is playing songs that sound a lot like the like Von Trapp family singer type stuff. And it says like, they're going to make everything great again, but they're also like beating people up. And that's also something that you're seeing happening at increasing frequency as the Nazis take power. Right. Um, and in, in reality, like before it was the Nazis, it was like the Volkish movements. It was like these other right wing movements that were already starting to take root. And like people in this scene in Cabaret like start disappearing. And then the musical ends pretty abruptly because this American writer goes home and everybody else presumably gets murdered by the state. That's kind of the the image you're left with at the end of Cabaret. It is not like a happy, happy musical ending. And you are left to presume that all of the characters that you're seeing besides the like point of view character don't make it through this. Um, Yeah. So it is rough. So, uh, so I'm going to like backtrack a little bit. I want to talk about the guy who wrote the stories, these short stories that eventually become the musical cabaret, um, Christopher Isherwood. He kind of comes to Berlin in 1929 and he's kind of like, to the best we can tell, like, according to his friends who talked about him at that time, he's like kind of an apolitical twink. He's like really no opinion either way about fascism. He's just heard like from his friend W.H. Auden, who's also a poet, that there's this like gay nightlife in Berlin. Like it exists. You can go there and you can meet other gay people. And he's like, cool. But he's not really thinking about it in political terms. He's thinking about it in like, oh, I can go there and I can like meet cute boys and like, it'll be great. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) I'd go too. So at this point, at this point in time, there's not very many gay scenes around the world. This is kind of it. They're all very underground, right? Almost everywhere. And especially in in like Europe, it's very like suppressed and underground. And gay people are not considered like a political class. Right. Like it's not really it's considered like a deviant behavior or whatever, but there's not really an established like politics around it or like gay rights activism. Right. Um, Like that's just starting in what we're going to talk about in a second. Anyway, so Christopher Isherwood goes to Berlin just to meet up with his buddies and like meet cute boys. Um, and he ends up making friends with this woman named Jean Ross. Um, and he later fictionalizes her as Sally Bowles. So that image that you had in your mind when I said cabaret of mm-hmm. like Liza Minnelli, that's Sally Bowles. And basically, actually, this whole circle of gay men uh, writers in their little like circle of expat libertines they all seem to write some version of Jean Ross into like their fiction or their poetry. And she really doesn't care for any of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> she is in Berlin living it up for about a year and a half when she was like 1920. Like this is very, she's a little bit younger than most of them. Right. Um, and then she she ends up moving on. She's got this like long career as a film critic and she's an anti-fascist activist. And like, she's, amazing like spend some time on her wikipedia page it is interesting so she was only there for a year and like they all wrote about her 
they all wrote about her and they all wrote about her in ways that like she's literally she's like this is ridiculous she, she does sounds legendary though oh, she's i mean amazing she seems super <laughs> cool i now want to know like i get way like, more into her even if she's not into what they said the fact that they all wrote about her that means she's yeah what what, what do you call that uh a muse she's a muse yeah right and so and the thing is like so she gives isherwood permission to to write about her in this short, short story because his publisher recommends like he get written permission because there is some stuff in the story that is like illegal at the time there's a story about her abortion which is illegal at the time so he's like right i've changed the names and everything like can i write this story and she's like okay go ahead and publish it it's not my name but like also this is ridiculous but like fine but unfortunately as like isherwood's career takes off her reputation as the inspiration for sally bowles precedes her and so she is going into these spaces where it's already difficult enough to be taken seriously as a woman and when reporters want to talk to her, she says, like, they always want to talk about sex. I always want to talk about politics. Mm. Right. And, and she's like, yes, like I was sexually liberate. Like, yes, I had sex. Like, that's that's the end of the story about that, according to me. Like, I don't think that's right. very interesting. Like, you want to ask about Berlin in the 30s and like, yeah, I'll tell you about the unemployment rates. I'll tell you about the the grinding poverty. I'll tell you about Nazis marching in the streets. And they're like, no, no, no. no. How many men did you sleep with? Right. She's like, what? How is that a story? Right. And she thought, like, when she read the stories, she refused to see Cabaret ever. But when she read the stories, she thought, she's like, Sally is depicted as being like super shallow and politically oblivious. And like, maybe I was more like that when I was 19. But also, Mm. this sounds more like Isherwood to me. She's like, this sounds like Chris. She's like, Chris and his friends, they were like fluttering around town, enjoying, you know, enjoying themselves. Great. Like exclaiming how sexy the stormtroopers looked in their uniforms is kind of like mm-hmm. she calls them out on that. She's like, yeah, they didn't they didn't appreciate like the gravity of the situation at all. Right. And like when I'm looking at Sally, it sounds more like Chris to me. OK, than it does so to me. sounds like the, the character is more of like a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely like he. Huh. The, what ultimately gets gets depicted as like the character that's like the the Isherwood stand in in the musical is like Cliff, who is a like straight and the most serious character and the character who sees what's going on. Right. And that like, according to everybody who was in this circle of people was like, absolutely not the case. They're like, W.H. Right. Houghton has backed it up. He's like, yeah, no, like Chris was not like <laughs> super <laughs> like <laughs> aware of what was going on. Christopher Isherwood then goes on to have like a long and interesting career as as a writer. And, you know, he does acknowledge that, yeah, I came in and I was like very naive and didn't really understand like the gravity of anything was that was going on. But one thing I did come to learn when I came to Berlin was I did start to recognize that like queer people are like a collective force, like a collective mm-hmm. existence. Like we have like this is family. Right. And yeah. he credits that to it's called the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, which I'm sure is a massive Knowledge. mispronunciation. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Which uh, there's a couple different translations that they use, but I kind of have called it the Institute of Sexology is, is the one I've kind of rolled with in my notes. <laughs> the Institute of Sexology was founded by Magnus Hirschfeld and Carl Giese in 1919. Um, and they're they're like romantic uh, partners and they meet in 1919 and they are together in an open relationship for the rest of Hirschfeld's life. 
So they started this institute, which is this huge building in Berlin. It's this huge complex. It's about 50 rooms. And there are all these like public facing aspects of the work. So Carl Giese is like the museum curator. So he curates this like museum people can come visit um, Mm -hmm. and this like library of research about sex and gender. And a lot of that is like original data and research by Hirschfeld, as well as like just like all of this, all of these texts he's collected from around the world. There's actually this is like the origin of you remember middle school sex ed, like the question box. Yeah, they as far as we can tell us are the first people who did that. Right. They had a question box at the Institute so people could like anonymously ask any question they wanted about sexuality. Most commonly, they got questions about contraception. So they helped people out with that. They developed the system of transvestite passes. So that people who were being like hassled by the cops for for cross-dressing, they figured out a system that like, oh, well, if we sign this transvestite pass for you as like a doctor, then the police will stop harassing you. Oh, yeah. So they actually like distributed these these passes, um, which is like it's ridiculous to say like, oh, if you've talked to a doctor, (laughs) if your doctor has recommended that that wearing the clothes you're wearing is right for you, then you can like it's a little bit ridiculous. But it was the fact was like this was like. But if it like helped people get through life, Mm -hmm. I'm sure Uh, it was still rough their way, but it would be just a little bit of a little help. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and there also are there's medical facilities on site um, where thousands of patients were treated for all kinds of like sexual, you know, sexual problems. And some of the first gender affirming surgeries in the world were performed in those medical facilities. Um, Dr. Hirschfeld didn't perform surgeries on transgender patients, but he worked with other doctors who were like developing these techniques. So if you've heard of like Lily Elba was treated at the Institute of Sexology. Mm-hmm. Um, Lily Elba, who's like, she's one of the first like well-known, um, partly because she was already well-known as a painter and then transitioned. Um, okay. So she was like a, a quite a well-known, like high-profile transsexual. Um, and yeah, and so her surgeries all happened at the Institute of Sexology. And then there's like a number, a number of patients when like that field is just developing in terms of surgery. Sounds um, like a very cool place to go. Yeah, and it's like super... Cool. Yeah. And like super, super important in terms of like the beginning of a lot of stuff like begins here. Yeah. And this is in Berlin. And this is in Berlin. And so and so when Christopher Isherwood arrives in like 1929, it's been there since like 1919. So they've they've at that point built up this like huge archive and library. So it's like 20,000 books. It's like all of this stuff and this huge community. Right. Because there are people who have been living at the Institute, you know, off and on that entire time. Mm. And including like Hirschfeld and and Carl Giese lived on the second floor of the Institute. <laughs> Should we go into a little bit more like biographical stuff about Hirschfeld? Sure. So he was from this like very prominent educated Jewish family in the, the area he was born in was like what was called Prussia at the time in 19, yeah. in 1868. So that area would later be Poland. And like to give you an idea of like how prominent his family was like when his father died their community built a monument to him which was unfortunately later destroyed by the nazis which is like seems to be the story with the hirschfelds unfortunately um foreshadowing so so the thing is like so from an early age like he has this position of privilege like within his own community but he's also super aware of prejudice from an early age because like anti-semitism is like rampant right from from when did that start do you have any idea like when anti-semitism 
became a thing? Was it just like for all of time? I, I, or did it sort not of for all of time? Like a lot of it kind of goes back to like the like Romans and when Rome adopts Christianity, mm-hmm. they want to distance themselves from Judaism. Right. And so that's a huge split, right? Right. Um, yeah. So like that's kind of the like early seeds. But then like if you're talking about on the subject of pandemics, like through the plague era, which is like all of the Middle Ages, people are really suspicious of of the Jewish communities because for the most part, the Jewish communities, which are like isolated within the communities, have lower rates of the plague. Oh, and it's partly because like they're following certain like laws from the Torah. Right. That that are good things to follow in terms right. of like, uh, like health and cleanliness. Safety. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, the plague, it's a it's a bacterial infection. So a lot of that stuff is like very yeah. Um it's very avoidable. And it's why like, you know, people still get bubonic plague and it's like we have antibiotics and also we know about washing our hands now. So actually this is fine. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's something that killed like so many people for so many years. People still get the bubonic plague. People yeah, still get the bubonic plague. Here, here wow. Yeah. I think yeah. it's usually where the people and rats are in close contact. Maybe? That was like it was from rats originally, right? Yeah, like most of our our sort of persistent diseases have some kind of like zoonotic origin, right? So it's like some kind of animal proximity and especially like animals that we aren't usually in proximity to. As a complete aside, I found six of my chickens ripped up in the chicken coop today. That's oh, funny. Speaking I'm of so animals. Sorry. It was very sad. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Disease free though. That's as as it's great. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> Anyway, so Magnus Hirschfeld, so he goes to school, he studies, he gets his doctoral degree in 1892. So we're into the gay 90s. Um, and, (laughs) And so after he gets his degree, he travels to America for the World's Fair in Chicago. And he also discovers the gay bars of Chicago. Um, Yeah, he does. So, and he's already kind of experienced, um, like, the gay bars of Berlin at that point. And so Mm -hmm. he's starting to look and he's like, it's interesting because I'm on, like, the other side of an ocean. And there's certain, like, similar vibes in, like, the gay subculture here, the gay subculture in Berlin. And he's starting to think, like, maybe homosexuality is, like, universal, like maybe this is oh, just a I thing see. that exists yeah. in all cultures and maybe there's like certain traits that seem to like repeat universally. Right. right. And so he's like, I want to like study about this. So he starts looking to find like anything that he can find that's been written about homosexuality. And of course, a lot of it's coming from a really prejudiced place. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this is like, like eugenics is really just starting to ramp up and like colonization racism is like you know well entrenched in a lot of there's a lot of like scientific racism basically that he's encountering as well as they're basically trying to use like instances of homosexuality to prove a racist point so so one example of that this is going to be really like disturbing and gross because racism is really disturbing and gross um yeah, again fuck nazis right fuck nazis and also fuck like the pre-nazi like colonialists it's all it's all the same shit which is yeah uh, i i believe through my research is what what magnus Tarshwald would say as we will see in this example so there's something that's going on at the time that magnus Tarshwald is really starting to dig into like finding everything he can read that like references homosexuality called the hot and tot apron debate have you ever heard of sarah bartman 
No. No. Okay. Well, it's a really sad story about Sarah Bartman. But Sarah Bartman was a koi koi woman who was... A what woman? She was a koi koi woman. So this is like a Southern African tribe. Okay. Um, Which like Europeans at the time would call the Hottentots, which is why this is called the Hottentot apron debate. And she was essentially, she was like kidnapped and put on display oh, in, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so she spent like the last years of her life on display throughout Europe. It was really awful. So she dies in 1815. So by the time Hirschfeld is reading about this and like people are having this hot and tight apron debate. Is the debate whether she should be kidnapped and used as like a non-consenting like research subject? Is- that would be a really short debate if they did it right. But unfortunately, (laughs) no, it's worse. So basically all that's left of her are these racist cartoons that like people drew of her during her lifetime that are like emphasizing like the size of her butt and her labia. Oh, boy. Because she was like displayed totally naked. Um, It's really, it's really really rough. It's really appalling. And so like the hot and taut apron theory that, that they're putting out there goes that like, okay, so since African women, according to literally caricatures of this one African woman have bigger labia than European women, asterisks there, more citation needed. There must be a lot of African lesbians. Like that's the theory. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like super made up. It's super racist and it's super weird. And Hirschfeld looks at this and he's like, nah, because like, firstly, I can't find anything specifically stating like his reasoning around this but i have to imagine that as a jewish person in europe at this time he's able to recognize like okay emphasizing certain physical features in bad art and then building a whole ethnic myth on them is just what these people do and it's like i'm not buying it right and we know that like he was ahead of his time in recognizing race as a social construct so like i imagine that these things are related but secondly like at this point he is a physician and he's practicing in europe and he he's like i know that there's like there's a natural variation in all people's bodies, all women's bodies. And like, sure. this isn't some exotic thing. So yeah. he's able to reason like, actually, like, we know I have, I can, I can show you the evidence. Like there's the same natural variation in European women's bodies as there is in African women's bodies. So guess what guys, like whatever you're saying about African women and lesbians, like it's also going to apply to European women. <laughs> There's, right. like, there's got to be European lesbians. Maybe we'll talk to them and find out. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's kind of what he, the path he starts to go down is he he really wants to talk to like anybody who is not heterosexual and like figure out what's going on and like what what can we map in terms of like data. How does he do you know how he like got people to talk to him like how he reached the community would it have been like through clubs and parties and stuff because you couldn't like put out something in the newspaper because then you'd be creating a target for like bigots right yeah no, there's know. there's a couple different ways so he is like he's still at this point he's doing like um he's doing trips to different locations around the world and he's trying to find like what's the queer subculture wherever he's going um mm-hmm. he's like starting up conversations with people in that he meets in bars and that he meets in these like meeting spaces that are kind of like underground he does not out himself technically in any of his writing or professional work because it's seen as an asset that he comes off as this unattached like third party mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, right but if you look at like what he did 
it's an asset that he's gay because he moves easily in this world, right? Yes. And yeah, like yeah. people aren't like people trust him and they people want to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't feel like he's doing it to make the next like hot and taut apron debate. He's like, I actually just want to learn like comparatively gay culture all around the world. I want to learn about that. That's the angle I'm coming from, not trying to prove like, therefore these people are inferior whether it's because of their like gender or their sexuality or their race or some combination. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to prove. I'm trying to find out what are people's experiences. And I ultimately would like to prove that this is like natural and normal because that seems to be like my observation. And like, he wouldn't have been able to talk to all these people. He ends up doing like 35,000 interviews with people. Um, Wow. We fall into these categories that at the time are categorized as like third sex, which is like a massive category. So this is like intersex people. This is Mm. like people we would now call trans, both like transgender, transsexual, non-binary, gay, lesbian, bisexual, maybe some asexual people, drag queens, like any variation on the norm in giant quotation marks. Yeah. It's just in this other category. It's marked as third sex. Mm. But as he's collecting like all of this data, he's doing he's having like 35,000 conversations with people and he's doing more international travel. He's seeing like what's going on all around the world. And he's going, actually, like we need to differentiate between gender expression and sexuality. We need to like start to identify more of like what are these actually different communities? And we need to like see the nuance in how like so-called masculine, feminine, and androgynous traits can be like combined and expressed. And so at one point he's doing a little like back of the napkin ca- calculation. He comes up, he's like the number of 43 million as the number of possible genders and sexual variations. He's like, three is definitely <laughs> not enough. He's like, maybe it's like 43 million. And then he's like, mm, that seems low. Like, wow. <laughs> like this, you know, but he's going to keep working on it. Like he's just, he, I, I love how like curious he is and how he's like, he is constantly changing what he thinks about things based on what he learns. Like he's, he's like, he's a true scientist in that way. I think. Cool. That's like 35,000 interviews though. I'm still blown away just by that. (laughs) That's insane. It is pretty wild. Yeah. So some point sort of like in this era, um, and this is before he has the Institute, he puts out his first pamphlet on the subject of homosexuality and it's called Sappho and Socrates. And he prints it under a pseudonym on the advice of his publisher. But he also tells his publisher, like, if anybody writes to you about this pamphlet, tell them I wrote it and they can talk to me because they probably need somebody to talk to you. Like somebody who comes to you about this pamphlet, like they need to talk to me. You can give them my address. Like I will talk to these people. So it's like a very uh, unsuccessfully anonymous and he never bothers to publish anything <laughs> anonymously again in his life. Right. He's like, no, I want to talk to my people. Like he's yeah. obviously like a very outgoing, gregarious guy. Right. And because of the number of people who reach out, he ends up forming um, with a couple other people in like publishing and in legal and like all of these other spheres of life, something called the scientific humanitarian committee, um, which is like kind of a dry name, but it's often credited as the first gay rights organization in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what year would this have been again? Um, sh- ooh, good question. I am not totally sure, but this is still in the, I think it's, we're still in the 1890s. Like we're probably okay. in the late 1890s, maybe the early 1900s at this point. Okay. That's impressive. What a guy. I know. He's such <laughs> a dude. I, I just love him. <laughs> 
So he's also at this point, like he is, he has a medical practice in Berlin. And because he's now like becoming known for writing about this subject, he's getting a lot more gay patients coming to him. And he has a number of gay patients who have died by suicide or attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, the trial of Oscar Wilde is happening. And he's following that with like great concern. He's very like moved by that. And he sees that there's like a parallel happening within German society. That's just not as high profile because it's not like happening to a famous writer. Right. Um, And so what's happening in German society is that there's something called paragraph 175. And that's that's their law in the books that prohibits male homosexuality. And he becomes known for providing expert testimony on cases surrounding this. And he doesn't have a lot of success. He often like gets shut down or the cases get thrown out. But it does give him the opportunity to make the public case not only He comes out strongly saying like homosexuality is not inherently deviant, but also having laws restricting sexuality in this way creates this huge problem with blackmail because basically any man that you're like, I got an issue with this guy. I want to take him down like, or you want to make money off him. Yeah, exactly. And it's also Hmm. becomes this really common racket among male sex workers because you can make like a little bit of money to have sex with men, but you can make a steady income if you threaten to report like a man for having sex with you, right? <laughs> Whether right. or not he did, right? <laughs> like if, it, if, if he is prominent enough that that would cause him significant social damage, you can make a killing on that. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a huge business problem. plan. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he's arguing like, A, you know, he's he was always, always very strong, like A, there's nothing wrong with being gay, but also, even if you think there is something wrong with being gay, there's something very wrong with the system that we have set up that makes it incredibly difficult, incredibly easy to blackmail people. Right, um, right. Those are kind of his, the two sides of his his argument that he's making in these cases where he's the expert witness. So in 1918, he participates in the making of this film that's called Different from the Others, which is this like tragic love story between two gay violinists <laughs> and uh one of them is is blackmailed by a former lover and so he's like so disgraced it kind of like ends his career and he chooses to end his life and then the surviving violinist is considering suicide as well but he ends up in the care of dr hirschfeld who's playing himself and the like famous quote that dr hirschfeld has in this movie is don't do it you have another task you have to encourage future generations so they don't suffer the same destiny as your lover did what matters now is to restore honor and justice to the many thousands before us, with us, and after us, through knowledge to justice. And so, like, a lot of people say, like, the use of the word us in this quote, which is, like, pretty early on in his sort of, like, public career as a gay icon who Mm -hmm. won't say that he's gay publicly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's the closest he gets to, like, publicly identifying himself as gay in his career. Like, you're like... I mean, yeah, that sounds like... Yeah. (laughs) Right? And it's, like, an important moment in terms of, like, media... Like, this is very early in, like, the film industry, right? So the fact that there's this, like, film that that depicts the situation is, like, very significant. And then also it, like, inspires a song of the same name, which becomes this, like, huge gay anthem in the Berlin cabaret scene. And so, like, it's intersecting with, like, this culture that's going on. Again, that, like, cabaret culture. What was the name of the song? Did you say uh, it? The song is called Different From The Others. I mean, it would be called that in German, but you can try uh, it. I will. Anders von den anderen. I think <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, I did it. Like the thing I read and couldn't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> I still know some stuff. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So at this point, um, paragraph 175 is still not repealed, but part of what allows this like more permissive atmosphere in Berlin in the Weimar years, so we're into the Weimar years now of these like interwar years, is that the police are instructed not to enforce paragraph 175. And there's some evidence Hirschfeld might have had some influence on this because he kind of made it a project. He would take police, like the police chief to a gay bar and just be like, <laughs> so you see normal like people having a drink, hanging out, Sodom and Gomorrah is it happening here, whatever you're picturing, like there's nothing really worth rating. And the police chief would be like, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. This is, this is, this is, I, let, let's just leave this alone. And so <laughs> that's part of what allows this like more permissive atmosphere in that era in Berlin specifically. Neat. Yeah, yeah. What a guy. I guy what a guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, it's at this point, like Hirschfeld likely meets Carl Giese, who becomes his boyfriend through Ooh. like probably through his brief career in film. Because we know like Carl Giese was in like theater. It's a little bit mysterious what he was doing before he met Hirschfeld. And anyway, they hook up and then they start the Institute the next year in 1919. And it's entirely self-funded because there's no there's no funding for starting an institute of sexology <laughs> like but like they have some money or are they fundraising? Yeah, so like Hirschfeld Hirschfeld has I mean both like he he's like this successful prominent doctor and and he has family money right because he's from he's from this prominent family you know it's kind of like this like perfect storm lightning in the bottle like he happens to be the person who has all these like radical progressive ideas and like wants to do the same thing and has the money, right? Like, and how often does that happen, right? Like that the person is interesting and, and like has all the right ideas also has like, doesn't have to convince anybody. Hirschfeld and Giesa, they like live together. Uh, They have like an apartment on the second store of the Institute. So they're kind of like part of this community. Um, There's a lot of uh, like trans people in particular who, who end up living at the Institute for like long periods of time. A lot of them end up, you know, having jobs within the Institute doing kind of like maintenance work. Um, in exchange for room and board. And Herschel is affectionately known in this community as Tante Magnesia. Tante is like, I, I gather it's a German word for auntie. It is. Yeah. 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 Did I say it right? <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Okay. You did uh, it. Ooh. And uh, so and and this is like a really common term of endearment among uh, gay men at the time, um, which I just think is super sweet. Uh, yeah, it's like again. the original girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or um, queen. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see it in like like if you've seen like Paris is Burning or like Pose, the ballroom culture of like having houses and like mothers and like, you know, it's like mm. your chosen family and like you have you have your auntie and like they take care of you and like Tante Magnesia takes care of you. So again, like he's doing all of this important work and he's certainly not closeted. Like he's, you know, publicly living in this institute and known as Tante Magnesia. But he's also <laughs> like, he's really careful that he doesn't write down like, I am a homosexual, right? Right, or he right. he doesn't say that like when he's, when he's speaking publicly, like professionally in his career. So like, it's not a was he or wasn't he. There's no like doubt historically whether he's gay or not. But the thing is like, it's pretty clear that that's not to protect himself from violence because his work in itself is already considered like dangerous by the right. His work in itself is already drawing that kind that negative attention, not to mention like he's already Jewish. He's already a socialist. He's already really widely hated for the right long before the Nazis come to power. Hitler like has his eyes on him and is like, this guy's a fucking degenerate, like way before Hitler has any power. Right. right. Like it's not a coincidence. Like what happens later on is not like a coincidence that they make an example of him. 
like he's in in these people's sights. So like it's not to like protect himself. So like within Berlin, he's kind of has has this status. But in 1920, he's giving a lecture in Munich. And after the lecture, he's beaten so badly that he's left for dead on the street. Oh, yeah. But he like somehow makes his way home and he wakes up the next morning and he reads his own obituary in the paper. And the right wing papers are like celebrating his death. And they call him a poisoner of the Volk. And when they finally like print the retraction saying like, oh, actually he survived. They apologize not for the fact that like they reported him dead when he wasn't or like all of these awful like anti-Semitic things they said about this man who was left bleeding in the street. But for the fact that he is still alive, they're like, we are sorry that this poisoner of the Volk is still alive. Uh, like super disgusting, right? Like, so, so like whatever's going on, like, I don't think that not putting that in his work was like protecting Like, I don't think it was to save his own skin, but he thought like it would give him more credibility. He certainly seems to have been concerned that, that it would like affect how his science was viewed. But in fact, like nobody else could have done the science, but, but it was an asset. Like the fact that he was queer was an asset. Yeah. Um, Sounds like. So, but did he go out like publicly or did he have to take care in being in public not to get jumped and shit? Like, was this an isolated incident? I think it was partly because he was outside of like the Berlin bubble is how I kind of picture it, right? Because it happens in Munich. And so in these other areas, so Weimar Berlin is kind of known as the place where, where things are a little bit more like loose and permissive and yeah, and that's what the Nazis like identify Berlin as and like, oh, we need to take down like this specific like den of sin, right? Anyway, so by 1930, that's already starting to happen. He kind of sees the writing on the wall um, and he schedules this world tour. Uh, and he's he's going on a world speaking tour and he books all these speaking gigs, but he's also like, I'm low-key looking for like a place I can emigrate and like <laughs> relocate my entire institute to because like it's not looking so good. And so Carl Giese stays behind in Berlin. He looks after the Institute. And one thing that's interesting on the world tour is, is he like does this kind of clever thing. For example, he visits America and he delivers a speech in English that's all about heterosexuality. And he's like, here are like the sexual rights of like heterosexual people. And like, you know, he talks about like contraception or whatever. And then he gives a talk in German and he talks more about like the depths of his like research into homosexuality and like trans people and like what what they're doing and and like all of this stuff at, at the Institute. So that like the people who show up and they speak German will understand what he said, but it won't be like the entire crowd because he knows mm. like, America is really, it's really homophobic. So if anyone's reporting it, they're just going to report on what he said in English. And he's also like, he'll, he goes to like India and he speaks out against like the colonization of, of India by the British. Right. And so he's, he's making sure that he finds some way to like get those ideas out, you know, like kind of low key way wherever he's going, but to make sure that like people know what side of issues he's on. On this world tour in Shanghai, he meets another sexology researcher named Li Xu Tong, who's also sometimes referred to as Tao Li. And again, like Carl Giese and he have a an open relationship. So he ends up falling in love um, with Li Xu Tong and Li Xu Tong travels with him for the remainder of the tour, which is so they meet in I think it's still 1930. It's pretty early on in the tour that ends up being the next three years. And Li Xutong's parents are actually like, they're super supportive, which is just like very cute. They like throw a, a, a like bon voyage party mm-hmm. and they're just like, we think you're like a great couple. 
And we hope you have like a wonderful journey. And also we hope that our son can be like the Hirschfeld of China. They kind of like recognize that it's like wonderful networking as well as like they're not bothered about the homosexual relationship, which is like, it's just a nice story that you don't always get to hear. And like when yeah. you're researching <laughs> um, gay people in the 19, early 1930s, it's just just not always what you get to hear. So I just want to like sit Yeah, no shit. That is some like, solid hey, parenting. That is lovely. And then sit on that moment like one second longer because it's gonna suck a lot from here on. Like it's just it's just not the the, the bad things are coming. Um, okay, I'm yeah. just gonna hold okay. hold on to that good feeling. Hold for on to just another hold on to second. 1930 because we're about to be in 1933. Uh, uh, 1933 sucks ass yep. and not in a positive sex positive uh, reclaiming way. <laughs> Like yeah, a, a like a way. shitty Nazi way. Yeah. So on May 6, 1933, members of the Nazi youth movement are organized to raid the Institute of Sexology. And so this is basically like, if you can imagine, it's like the Boy Scouts get like hijacked by the military to destroy history. Like, it's a weird, terrible fucking moment in history. They go through and they, like, take all, everything off the shelves, everything out of the museum. Um, and they're, they're going through finding stuff to destroy. But also, there are some residents of the Institute that are believed to have been there when the raid happened. And they're never heard from after this date, including, like, Dora Richter, who was the first transgender woman ever known to have gender-affirming surgery and, like, lived on and off at the Institute for a lot of the period when the Institute was there. She is never heard again. After this stage, mm. she's presumed dead in this raid. And this is literally like Boy Scouts are organized to conduct this along with like, like literally. OK, like, when you said like, it's like, like Boy Scouts, it's like a bunch of Eagle Scouts. You mean literally not literally, it's like Boy Scouts. Like it's literally Boy Scouts. Youth. Yeah. The Nazi wow. youth are, are essentially like Hitler's Boy Scouts. Right. Um, and that's, you know, and they go camping and they learn about kinds of trees and they raid libraries so on may 10th a bunch of the stuff that they pulled out of the archives the majority of the twenty thousand volumes of research and the thirty-five thousand images that are collected in the archives are burned in this like very public show of power by the nazi party including a speech by joseph goebbels in which he declares no to decadence and moral corruption yes to decency and morality in family and state the era of extreme jewish intellectualism is now at an end it's not like, oh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, we'll pick this guy. Like Hitler was talking about how like degenerate Hirschfeld was from the like earliest point. He's talking about anybody in those terms. Yeah. The earliest point. Then anybody's listening to Hitler. He's like, this fucking guy, we're going to get him. And that happens in 1933. Mm. And he's like seen as like this like perfect scapegoat, right? Of like everything that they're saying, like, if we get rid of this, we're going to have the perfect country. If we get rid of the Jewish people, if we get rid of the homosexuals, we have the perfect state. It's not like a coincidence, right? And yeah. yet, like, when we see pictures, like you've seen pictures of this burning. It was in your history book. Like anybody listening, this was in your like grade 10 history book. I think it was in one of the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah. And was it? Like, yeah, I think so. And and probably there was no like caption or reference to what was burning, right? It's in the history books, and we talk about like this is an example of like look at this, like the Nazis were so bad they were like censoring this, and yet like when that history is reported, a lot of the time like we're censoring what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. We're censoring the fact that these are like records that were there to prove like the innate natural like state of like homosexuality, of transgenderism, of all of this information and research, like we're censoring the fact that that's 
what they were destroying. Mm. Right. Like in the history books, it would just, the caption would be like Nazis burning, burning books. books. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's like, oh no, they're burning books. That's really bad. And like, yeah, that's really bad. But also like, it wasn't just randomly like Nazis hate books. Right. <laughs> like, I always wondered about that. I was like, was happening. why, why like, are they, no, why do they hate these books Nazis so much? don't like it when like, a Jewish socialist self funds an institute and does like a massive amount of incredible data collection on queer people. That's what Nazis don't like. Um, There's a lot of things that Nazis don't like, but that's like top of the list. That does seem like a, like a, like a, like a triple layer cake of things that Nazis hate. Yeah. It's just, they don't love it. I think it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Like I want to eat that cake. I'm into that cake. It's a really good layer cake. I mean, who hates cake? Yeah. Anyway, so on three days later, May 13th, we come back to our old our old chum, Christopher Isherwood, packs up his little typewriter and he heads out of Berlin. And at this point, you know, he may have come into Berlin, not really understanding the gravity. But at that point, like I imagine he was like well over finding anything sexy about stormtroopers. And he like definitely understands what's at stake for him personally. Um, First of all, he's seeing the Institute targeted in this way, and he had become like quite close friends with a lot of people at the Institute. And he also then he's attempting to return to England with his German boyfriend, Heinz Nettermeyer. But Nettermeyer's denied entry to England. And so they spend the next four years, they're moving around Europe, trying to find a place where they can settle until Nettermeyer is arrested by the Gestapo for draft evasion and reciprocal onanism, which is like a really fancy way of saying that they were gay in 1937. So like, I just wanted to be clear, like at the point when Gene Ross knew him, Christopher Isherwood may have like not understood the gravity of the situation. He certainly like learns it in the worst possible way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So Hirschfeld and Li Tong are still on tour when the Institute is raided. So they officially decide like they're not returning to Germany that like Hirschfeld never goes back to Germany in his life. And they arranged to reunite with Carl Giese in France with some of the items. So he was Carl Giese was able to save some items in the raid. Um, and so they're like, OK, we're going to take like these suitcases that Carl has and we're going to try to start over again, basically in France. But then on Magnus Hirschfeld's 67th birthday, May 14th, 1935, Tante Magnesia is celebrating his birthday with a friend and his great nephew, while Carl Gisha and Lee Shutong are both away from their shared home in Nice. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they have a, like a, what sounds like a nice little birthday celebration. They open some birthday cards. They have a nice lunch together. They go for a walk. And then when they return, um, Magnus suffers a heart attack and dies in his apartment just over two years after the raid on the Institute. It's really interesting how like a lot of the things seem to happen right around like this middle of May mark in his life. It's just a weird coincidence that he like dies on his birthday on May 14th. And mm-hmm. that's also around the time that the, the Institute is raided. So in his will, Magnus had already written that everything was to be left to his boyfriends with the stipulation there to use his resources to reestablish the Institute and, and to further the study of sexology. So that's that's to go towards like restarting their work. Right. And Carl Giese specifically, he was willed the books and objects that had been saved from the Institute, the stuff that, that he had saved, which would have been in the apartment in Nice at the time of Hirschfeld's death. But unfortunately, the reason Carl Giese was not in Nice at the time was he had been arrested in a bathhouse and imprisoned for three months and then forced to leave France. So he is. Yeah. So at that point, he's been exiled and And uh, his stuff is there and he can't get it. So his stuff, 
at the time of Herschel's death, I think would have been in the apartment. By the time he manages to come back to Nice illegally for Magnus's funeral, he discovers that to claim his inheritance, he has to present himself at the German embassy, which he absolutely cannot do for multiple reasons, since, first of all, obviously not supposed to be in France at the time. And if Germany knows where he is, they can now arrest him under paragraph 175, which is not only being enforced by the Nazis, like that's back stronger than ever, but it's also been rewritten to include like any kind of suspiciously gayish behavior. Like it doesn't have to be in any way even remotely proven that you were having like sex. Right. It includes like, and it definitely includes like curating a sex positive, gay positive, trans positive mm-hmm. museum, and then like showing up at the embassy to collect the last remaining artifacts that prove that you were that person. Right. right. So these suitcases are like sitting at the embassy, and Carl Giesel like can't go get them. He unfortunately dies by suicide in 1938. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, his inheritance was destroyed after his death. And for a long time, this was believed to be like the absolute end of Hirschfeld's legacy, the end of anything surviving from the Institute. But then there's a Canadian twist. Ooh. So in 1993, there's this guy named Adam Smith, um, and he had a job in the apartment building where he lived. He His job was to bring the dumpster from the basement of the parking garage, this is in Vancouver, to yeah. the back of the building every week. And he's like a super curious guy, kind of a self-described like pack rat dumpster diver. So sometimes he likes to like poke around in there and see if there's anything interesting in there. And one day he sees uh, this old worn out suitcase and he's like, I'm going to see what's inside. And the first thing he finds in there, he realizes is it's a face. It's a death mask. I was going to say uh, the head of a body. <laughs> yeah. Close. No, like it's, it's, um, it's not real, but it's, it's the, it's the cast of a face. Um, and that happens to interest him. So he takes the suitcase back up to his apartment and he starts looking through the other items and he figures out that like by looking at like the names on some of the other documents, he's like, oh, this is probably the face of Magnus Hirschfeld, whose name is on some of these other documents in the suitcase. And and so Adam Smith happens to be like a pretty early adopter of the Internet. It's 1993. So he goes online and he makes a post on a bulletin board somewhere that's like, anybody know anything about Magnus Hirschfeld? I have like some of his stuff. And I would like to know more. Seems kind of interesting. <laughs> and then for the next 10 years, the post just like sits there and he doesn't really get any like leads on it. But he like hangs onto the suitcase. He like moves a couple times, moves the suitcase with him. Like, oh, my gosh. Bless wow. Adam Smith. Yeah. Because he doesn't really know like the significance of this. He just thinks it's like this interesting stuff. I would like to learn more about Magnus Hirschfeld someday. But in the meantime, I just have his face in a suitcase. I <laughs> can't throw that out. Yeah, no kidding, right? right? Yeah, it's a face. It's a face, right? <laughs> and then finally, in 2003, so it's like a full decade later, there's a man named Ralph Dosa, um, who's the director of the Magnus Hirschfeld Society in Berlin, um, who's been told since he like started this work with the society that like it's kind of a pointless job. There's nothing left. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing right. left to archive. And he somehow is like digging through the internet and he finds this post from 10 years ago. This guy's like, I have Magnus Hirschfeld's suitcase. Does anybody know anything? And so they end up connecting. And wow. yeah. And so basically, what they managed to determine is that Li Shu Tong must have lived in the same apartment building. 
that oh, he immigrated to Canada. So he ended up he ended up eventually in Vancouver. There's a, like a period where he's living in Hong Kong and like a couple other places, but he ends up ultimately in Vancouver and he still has like the last of these documents. Wow. And and then when he passed away, the suitcase like his his whatever like family that he had in Vancouver didn't understand the significance of it, obviously, because they were yeah. like, "Well, this this doesn't seem important. This doesn't go to Mister Fawcett, yeah." And then, like, you know, thank God for this pack rat, Adam Smith is like, oh, it seems interesting. It's a face. Maybe I'll keep it. Yeah, and and so what's in there, like, you know, it's it's one suitcase out of like. 20,000 volumes of research or whatever, but it does have some interesting artifacts. It's got like a copy of, of the film different from the others. It's got, you know, some of this, this interesting stuff. So there is like, it's just like this interesting glimmer of hope that like for, for years, like for decades, everybody thought like that was the end when Carl Gisa passed away and, you and know everything was, it's the end. Pack rats are always like, Oh, but I might need it someday. I know. I think that Adam Smith is like the poster child for pack rats We're worldwide. So many hoarders. It's really I. I don't feel good about that, but like I do feel good about Adam Smith. I think he's a hero. <laughs> I feel great about Adam Smith. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's uh, that's essentially the story. How much do people know about Hirschfeld after the Nazis like obliterated all of his research and institution and like? him <laughs> well and also you have to like the sad truth is you have to take into account how many people who were touched by the institute die mm. in yeah. the next 10 years right like mm. how many of those people are killed and like don't don't live to tell the tale like this was really important and like obviously not all of them that's like one of the reasons that Isherwood becomes like in some ways like an important writer because like he was there mm-hmm. right and it's also but it's also partly because europe in general had not like really dealt with their hang-ups around this stuff in the process of like the post-war prox- process like i think you have to give germany a lot of credit for like the way they went about the process of denazification like that's what they called it and they really were like something went horribly wrong here and we have to do a major like overhaul of our society and we have to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't really part of what they chose to like rehabilitate. They weren't, this wasn't part of the conversation of like, are we going to, are we going to try to rebuild the Institute of Sexology? It just was not part of the conversation for a long time. So like by the time I forget when exactly it is that they decide like, oh, maybe we should have a Magnus Hirschfeld society because something important happened here. But it's like many decades later. It's many decades later that they even start that somebody's like, we should have something to honor this. Mm -hmm. And like the other thing, it's like there's an interesting like rabbit hole you can go down here because obviously in a world where there were no Nazis, it would be amazing to have all of this research. But in some ways, it's really good that the Nazis did not have access to the research after they burned it. Because a lot of what Herschel was trying to prove was that homosexuality was a natural born trait. Right. And so he's doing all this research, like he's like, oh, could like, can we identify like what other traits is this linked to? And people are still doing this kind of research. That's like essentially like scientific gaydar, like can like are there other traits that this is linked to is there a gay gene right 
because right. like, genetics is really just starting to take off. And that's like how you prove that something is normal and natural from Hirschfeld's perspective. Right. So if they'd had that, they might have been able to decide who was and wasn't gay, even without any direct evidence. And then yeah. exterminate oh, those I people see. based so, on those. So criteria. that's the thing, like from Hirschfeld's perspective, yeah. he's like, oh, like if we can just prove that like being gay is like any other genetic trait, then people will understand it and they won't be so alarmed. Right? right. Which is like so much of the ethos behind a lot of his work. And sometimes it worked. Like it seems to have sort of worked when he like takes the police officers to the gay bars and is like, this is a normal place. So he's like going about that also in his research. He's like, if I can prove scientifically that this is natural. But if you think about that research falling into Nazi hands, these are people who are obsessed with a genetic ideal that does not include gay or trans people. And yeah. this would have been like a really horrifying field guide for them, even if none of this turns out to. It's also, you know, it's all everything with genetics is like approximate, right? It's like this seems to also come along with this, but that's a tendency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you if they had this research, there's things that he wrote that are like gay men often seem to be between like this height and this height. And their hips are often like the same width of their shoulders. And like this is just a tendency. Like I've done a bunch of data. I've like measured some people while I was talking to them about their lifestyles and like (laughs) And for him, like, it's part of this whole picture. And this is like still, this is still an issue in research about LGBTQ people today, because we're still catching up with what was set on fire. And it's like, still difficult to get funding for this, right? Like, again, this is a self-funded project. And this is like, somebody decided it was their life's work, but like, no university signed on to this. And so now it's still, and now we have like computers that, Like there are programs that will identify like that the word transgender in studies and just delete all of those before it decides to who to get funding to. Like that's happened within recent memory because we have all of these like more tools. And that also means like we have more tools if people get information that we don't want. We have CRISPR now, right? Like so if people still have these like harmful ideologies, that's really dangerous. So like there is a like legitimate question of like, is this the kind of research we want to be doing? And obviously, it's not the only kind of research that Hirschfeld was doing or that was being done through the Institute. But like, but the Nazis would have had a field day with that shit. Yeah, it would have been like, it could have been really dangerous. But then at the same time, it's like, but there's so much like, we just don't even know what we don't know. And obviously, like stalling all of what was going on. Where would society be today if they hadn't been shut down and ripped apart you know well and if you look at like the gay rights movements and it's definitely like gay rights movements as opposed to like you know more broad lgbt rights movements that arise post-world war ii they're like way more assimilationist they're like men wear ties to our meetings women wear dresses because like if we get caught we don't want like anything to look weird so like Mm -hmm. right away they're like cutting a lot of people out of like associating with them in these like respectable gay rights circles they're like super anti-sissy they're super anti-trans and then if you fast forward to like 1973 is when homosexuality is removed from the sexual the definition of sexual deviance in the diagnostic statistics manual by the american psychological association and um the man who's the president-elect of the apa at that time john p spiegel is a closeted gay man Mm. And so, like, in 1973, he had been, for years, like, his wife knew that he was gay. 
but he couldn't practice psychiatry as a gay man because you couldn't be openly gay and practice psychiatry at the time because it was still pathologized because we've lost all this progress when this library went up and spoke. Right. Like all of this right. stuff that, that didn't happen led to the, the fact that in 1973, you still had to have somebody who could position themselves as this like, in, the, in much the same way that like Hirschfeld didn't include that information in his professional biography, he had to position himself as like, I'm just a really like compassionate, lovable grandpa, like straight ally <laughs> in order to get that change through. Even though you have all these right. people who know, they're like, we know that this is not like inherently a destructive force in people's lives. We know that because like we are gay and we're psychiatrists, but we can't say like that's still happening in 1973. And like, we're still yeah, having wild. arguments about bathrooms in 2020, right? Like, it's wild. And like, think about how differently the AIDS crisis might have been handled. Like, there's, it's just like yeah, mind boggling yeah. all of the different roads history could have gone down. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, good yeah. job. Ah. <laughs> did you know all of like, did you, did you already know that before the podcast or did you research it all for the podcast? I researched like, details to the podcast i knew like broad strokes well that done. was like way longer than i thought it would be i'm well so done. sorry <laughs> that was great it was awesome do you have a favorite part <laughs> I, i'd have to think about it <laughs> <laughs> I have a favorite part, and it's the nickname Tante Magnesia. <laughs> I love that. Also, yes. I mean the the part about the 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 guy finding the stuff in the garbage bin is pretty. Yeah, good. yeah. Especially when it's, that, such, it's such a huge amount of time has passed mm-hmm. by that time. Yeah, and that no, he hung on to it for ten years is yeah. remarkable. Because you think know, he'd be like, right? "Well, nobody seems to know what this is." Moving on. <laughs> I know Adam Smith. What a hero. Adam Smith. What a guy. (laughs) Well, Emmett, what have you been reading or watching or listening to? Do you have any cool recommendations? Yeah. I recently watched all of Superstore. Have you seen Superstore? Superstore? No. It is. It's set in like a big box store. And it stars America Ferreira. And I just love her face. So it's great. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's like a, it's an amazing cast. And it's just like, you know, if you want like a, just a very like relaxing, silly, but also like relevant comments on uh, the role of labor in society, TV show, Superstore is a lot of fun. It's on Prime, which is an interesting place to get your comments on labor in society. But... <laughs> You know, uh, no ethical consumption <laughs> under capitalism. <laughs> I, it's fine. I just we don't my, have Prime. Yeah, I oh mean, Amazon. Yeah, mm. we borrowed it a few times. Yeah, I mean that's this is a a good reason to borrow it because yes, I also <laughs> thanks mom for your Prime password. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Chris? Anything I've been watching been- Cobra Kai. Oh, yeah, Cobra Kai. <laughs> the uh, Karate Kid reboot with two of the original cast members from the movies. Yeah. I have never seen any Karate Kid movies. Is this the one I should start with? <laughs> no, I mean, this is a, it's like a series with 
the Karate Kid as like a fifty-year-old man. Okay. And his nemesis as also a fifty-year-old man. I would start with the Karate Kid. Okay. Start like it's, it's, a, it's a start from the beginning kind of franchise. <laughs> yeah, I mean you don't have to watch anything but the first <laughs> one, but you know, they're all pretty good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm trying to remember what I've been listening to. I've been listening to actually since I recorded the episode, the last episode with my dad. He was talking about John Hartford. Do you know John Hartford? No. It's kind of like, so he wrote most or a lot of the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. So oh. he's like a bluegrassy, but he's still alive and stuff. But okay. he was like big in the 60s, 70s, I think, or big. Okay. At, so he sort of maybe so peaked. In I guess 70s. I must know John Hartford secretly because I do know that soundtrack really well. I don't remember anything that happened in that movie, but I do know that soundtrack really well. I like it a lot. <laughs> So yeah, I do it's a great soundtrack. Uh, yeah, no, that's what's your favorite song from that soundtrack? I mean, I love the I think it's like Alison Crest, Gillian Walsh, like Down to the River to Pray on that soundtrack is like yes. that is a quality track. Yeah, that's the one that stands out. The starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down. Because I think that was, that might have been like my introduction, doc, introduction. I've been saying too many words and I'm just out of pronunciation. <laughs> introduction. It's starting to sound kind of, kind of Deutsch, no? <laughs> It <laughs> was my introduction to uh, to Gillian Welch, and I just love her so much. So, yeah. Actually, you know what? I do love that song, but the one, the one that's like, wait, I don't want to sing. Shit, shit, <laughs> shit! I have to. Sing. You can do a dramatic uh, reading of the lyrics. You could also just just <laughs> splice in a clip right here. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, the one that's like, go to sleep, you little thing. Go to sleep, you little thing. Go to sleep, you little thing. You and me and the devil makes three. Don't need no other loving babe. Go to sleep, you little thing. Go to sleep, you little babe. Your mama's gone away and your daddy's gone stay. I love that one so much, and I used to sing it to I've, both of our you, kids and their babies. That, yeah. yeah, you've sung that not even not even that long ago. It's a great song. It's very sad, though. I mean, it's like about a baby whose mama left well, uh, to or, put on her high heel shoes. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, maybe she was trying to earn money to take care of the baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably I, what was up. I, well, I also think it's like it dates back to slavery, right? Uh, sad story about so many of this sucks is that they have sad stories in them. <laughs> um, yeah. But it is a beautiful song. But yeah, check out John Hartford. Okay. Oh, and then the other one in the last episode that we just released, what is his name? Wade Hemsworth. Uh, you know the Mosquito song? No, Black yeah. song? Yeah. So that guy's pretty fun. Wade Hemsworth. It's He has the weirdest voice you've ever heard. And has an album from 1955 called Folk Songs of the Canadian North Woods. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I'd recommend checking it out. <laughs> Sweet. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, hey, Emmett, 
Do you have any plugs? Plugs, do plugs, I have any plugs, plugs? Anything you want to promote? You can listen to the first six or possibly seven episodes of my podcast, Gaze in the Woods, if you want to uh, hear me talking a lot less than I just did. <laughs> uh, and more about the present than about history. Yeah. And I, I think that's about it. I think that's... Oh, and you have a Patreon, don't you? I do. I think it's E-M-M-L-F. But if you just search Emmett L... What is even my name? Emmett L.F. Cameron on Patreon. And you find the one that's like a bunch of doodles and stuff. And if you like, like coloring sheets and stuff, I have a lot of like printable, that kind of stuff. And I rarely talk for two hours about Nazis on my Patreon. Oh, don't worry. I'm that's a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy me not talking about Nazis. I also do it like I, uh, I write poetry. So sometimes I'll, I'll put up like a audio or video recording of like poetry and stuff. So that kind of stuff is up there. Yeah, that's a face. Hey, Chris, do you want to plug anything? Hair plugs, butt plugs. This is what Sarah says every time. <laughs> Hair plugs, butt plugs. <laughs> I will plug a butt plug. That's a good plug. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of a tub plug. Oh, a tub plug. Yeah. Nice. My, my bathroom sink plug doesn't quite fit and slowly oh. leaks. So I'm really... I would appreciate a good plug in uh, in that area of my life. You never know until you, know, you have one that doesn't work well. And then you're like, man, you know what? I I would like a better plug. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I on that note, I'd like to plug warm baths, huh. especially as we're coming into fall. Oh, wait, are we just allowed to plug concepts <laughs> that we enjoy? Yeah. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to plug the, the, the wonderful Canadian cocktail, the Caesar. It's really been a good friend of mine this summer, and I'd like to shout out to <laughs> the man from Calgary who invented that. You in know, the, in the twenties. For our American listeners, <laughs> could you clarify what what a Caesar is? How is it different from a Bloody Mary, Chris? Well, it's it's got clam juice in it, which is surprising <laughs> to a lot of people. So it's like <laughs> tomato juice and clam juice, and then a really salty edge around the rim that you kind of you kind of dab with lime juice. That is usually Worcestershire. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. there's hot sauce Tabasco. and then lots of variations with all, all kinds of things like pickled beans or celery. The classic mm-hmm, is mm-hmm, with a piece mm-hmm. of celery. No, it's, so. a, it's a meal in a glass. I'd like to plug uh, plain seltzer because I, uh, I am allergic to clams and I can't drink anymore because of my migraines. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so your, your, your Caesar has to be more like a Bloody Mary. Yeah, Caesars are out for me, unfortunately, but I am... But, but you could do uh, you could do a Caesar with just a tomato juice. And I, then a, I can. All of the other you could do a classic American Caesar. All of the other. You could do a classic American bloody Caesar. A uh, bloody Mary. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I could do a Virgin Mary. In fact, <laughs> a Virgin Mary. I'd like to plug the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Who doesn't? Am I right? I, I mean, if we're getting into, <laughs> um, if we're getting into biblical things, I, I, Virgin Mary is pretty cool. She's got a song. It's the Magnificat. Uh, it's all about uh, tearing down the institutions, the patriarchy, fuck capitalism. So yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should also plug Jesus Christ Superstar. We have it on vinyl. It's a great record. <laughs> I have Godspell on vinyl. Uh- <laughs> you can find the podcast at teachmetigerpodcast.ca. We're on Instagram and Facebook at teachmetigerpodcast. And please give us money. Please, please, please at patreon.com slash teachmetigerpodcast. Give them so much money. They had to so listen much money. to me for so long. All of this history. Yeah, come on, guys. And 
And two bucks a month gets you access to bonus uh, material from every episode. Ooh. So you get I gotta check out that only bonus material. two bucks a month. <gasps> right? What a bargain. What a bargain. Bonus material right after this. Emmett, thank you so much for coming thank on this so show. Much. Thank you for doing all that research. I, Holy it, was, it was nice talking to you. Any of my professors who are listening are well aware that I've never researched a paper that well. So you're <laughs> Yeah, no, it was super fun to have an excuse to like put all of this brain dump stuff that I've been carrying around and like obsessed with for the past five years or so into uh, a spot. Yeah. Thank now you. you can just direct people to the podcast episode. I know. I can stop <laughs> running parties with this shit. <laughs> right. Just reference right. the podcast number. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. And we're going to shut her down here. Are you ready? <laughs> Yeah. And remember, it's, it's a, a jungle, jungle out, out there. there. <laughs> <laughs> teach me, Tiger, how to tease you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tiger, Tiger, I want to squeeze you. Thank you.